One other thing we want to think about this morning as we get ready is I want to talk about our preacher. Now, I'll be try to, try to be careful to keep it brief because our dean's going to have more things to say about him in a little while, and he's the dean, and he's my boss. So, But I've known Rob since 1997 when I came here as a student. Now, I was an old student back then, but I had the opportunity to work with Rob in a couple of areas. And so I've had a chance to, to see him in action for for 20 plus years. And during all these years, as I've watched Rob, he does everything with excellence and never seeking recognition or glory. If there is a way for Rob to fly under the radar, he flies under the radar and it gets done, and it gets done amazingly. In working with him as time has gone on, and we've worked closer and closer together, I have never once heard him utter the word no, or it can't be done. Usually what you hear from Rob is, sure, or we'll figure it out. And he always does. I've called him our MacGyver. If, if some of you are too young to understand that reference, and I hope you're not, MacGyver was this TV show where this guy could just sort of take anything and make something happen. And that's Rob. You can give him, you can give him all kinds of just bits and parts of things and he puts it together. And next thing you know, we have wonderful audio visual production. And that's, that's Rob. That's him getting it done. And he always seeks to honor the Lord with his gifts of preaching and teaching and music. Many of you know a little bit about his music. He sings pretty good. You've seen him play an instrument or two. He plays a lot. At my last count, I think he plays about ten instruments, most of them self-taught. He even plays the shofar, or for those of us from Walker County, the ram's horn. First time I ever laid eyes on anyone playing one was at Legion Field, the big stadium downtown that nobody goes to anymore. But back in the 90s, there was a, a movement called Promise Keepers, and they were filling stadiums, and we were listening to, to great preachers and leaders telling men how they were supposed to leave. And it rained the night before, and it rained that morning. And we were stand, sitting there in our ponchos and it was raining and this guy stepped out onto the stage and 40,000 people there and blew the ram's horn and the rain stopped. And I'm telling you, it still gives me chills today. I've never heard anybody play the ram's horn. Rob is an incredible friend. You've all gotten to know him. He's an incredible leader and he's incredible at everything he does. I've heard him preach before. You are in for a great treat today because what flows from Rob is what God has put in him. His humility is where the power comes in his preaching and teaching and the work that he does. Rob, we will be praying for you this morning and we will gladly hear you in just a few minutes. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Revelation. We'll be reading from chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, and then jumping forward to ver chapter 21 with a selection of verses from there as well. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to our leaders and to our worship leaders. I've stood in this pulpit and spoken so many times, and pretty much every time I do, I get up and I say, testing, testing, one, two. <laughs> I have usually at those moments a whole lot more to say, but I only try to say what's necessary. And I hope I do the same today. The first thing that I think is necessary is to say some thank yous to my Beeson family. But first of all, I want to give a thank you to my wife, Vicki. Uh, she's been married to a seminarian for 20 plus years. And uh, I couldn't have done this without her. And she wouldn't have done this except for me. And I recognize that and I'm forever in her debt and her love and support and her um, her constant prayer and her faithfulness. She's the best seminary that anyone could attend because she has a heart for God that comes out in everything that she does. And some of the best things that you like about me really came from her. 
And so I'm grateful, and I thank God for her constantly. Um, but so many others, in a way, I feel like I've cheated in getting here because of so many who have poured into my life. I think of our preaching professors, and I think of Dr. Pascarello. I think especially of Drs. Smith and Webster, who long before I was in their classes were my professors, um, who Dr. Smith, from whom I learned so much about what it is to be a friend and to make disciples and to be a pastor, and similarly from Dr. Webster, but even more Dr. Webster, who took time with a student to or with this staff member who would come up and say, hey, I'm preaching on this, and he would just pour into me and has probably invested more in my preaching than any other one person. I could list so many students, and I think of my brothers Spike Burt and Drew Phillips and Daniel Logan, who week after week read through my terrible manuscripts and always had encouraging words to say. But it was part of a 20-year quest. How do we better share the good news of Jesus Christ to some people who, to people who, who sometimes don't even really want to hear it or don't realize the significance or importance of what we're saying to them? How do we grab hold of their hearts? I think I can do this, and I know I've got this wrapped around my microphone. And so... That's been my heart for now 20-some years. How do we better express this gospel? But this day means so much to me, especially because of the man for whom this award is named, Dr. James Earl Massey. Dr. Massey was a gentleman's gentleman and a scholar's scholar. He, he earned the name the Prince of Preachers, but he was a prince in everything that he did. He was the kindest, truest gentleman that anyone could hope to be. He had the discipline of a soldier, which he was, the heart of a chaplain, which he had been, and the also the skill and intensity of a classical pianist, which he was as well. And here was this great leader, an African-American man from Detroit, over twice my age. And for some reason, every time he came to campus, he would come by my office and sit with me. And these were wonderful times for me, but it was more kind of like that wonder that probably... Mary and Martha and Lazarus felt when Jesus decided to spend the day with them. It was sort of like, this is phenomenal, and why are you hanging out here <laughs> with, with the sound guy? You know? But he was investing in me in ways that I didn't fully understand, in ways that I couldn't quantify. There were ways that had an effect without having an agenda. And if they had had an agenda, they wouldn't have been loved and they wouldn't have done what they did in my life. 
Years later, I understand better that I was learning something from Dr. Massey that is not only a theme in, this, in these texts today, but also is a thread that winds its way from Genesis to Revelation. And that is this, that, that the presence is the point. We have, during this semester, traced God's purpose, uh, as Dr. Sweeney shared about Christ's Great Commission, as Dr. House shared about God's promises to Abram and Sarah, as Drs. Gardner and uh, Ginolette shared about God's prophetic purposes for the world, as Dr. Padilla spoke to us about the formation of a unified new people in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, as Dr. Parks challenged us to participate in the purposes of God for the world, and as Dr. Smith beckoned us to look for a better king and a better kingdom. And all the way, what we've seen is this purpose in history that I think the Bible raises and answers, and that is this. Now that sin, decay, and death has entered the world, how can there be a people with whom the holy God can dwell And today's texts intersect with some of the great issues that are on our hearts even today. The pandemic, the murder of an inordinate amount of unarmed black people, and political division in our country. Because whether we're concerned about a tube in our our throats or a knee in our neck, what we want to know is whether God is near us and whether we're separated because of reasons of health or partisan division. We wonder if friendship is possible. And the loss and nearness of death have raised the question in us about whether life has hope and suffering has purpose. And in this time of pandemic and partisanship, we have experienced in a very real way the alienation that has always existed in our hearts between us and God and us and one another, but we've just learned to live with it. This existence that, that has followed us ever since we were sent out of the garden and we turned back around and saw the cherubim and the flaming sword and we knew we could not pass back in unless we passed under the sword. And when God met us, it wasn't in Ur of the Chaldees or a great city. It was in the wilderness around Haran. And in Exodus, when God brought us out by the power of His might and went before us and then we sinned, Soon God, we found, would not walk with us, but was tabernacling outside the camp. And we wondered, how can he be with us and how can we be with him? And Moses begged to know, Lord, will you go up with us? And when Moses had done everything, chapters and chapters of Exodus later, when Moses had done everything according to God's perfect plan, There is a sigh of relief at the end of Exodus as God's presence is finally with his people. But then we flip the page and we find ourselves in Leviticus and we find that the presence of God is so holy that to have him with us is costly. God is a costly companion because blood is needed to cleanse the way between us and him. And even the Levites were called to at times wear and bear the sword because you could only come into the tabernacle at certain times, certain people by a certain way. The holiness of God can only be approached by the sanctified priest. And the the cherubim on the curtain like the cherubim at the garden reminded us That the way is guarded back to God and every human relationship is a decision about risking, will I give myself to another? But to return to God, we definitively have to pass under the sword. 
the blessing that the, the Levites gave to the congregation contained this phrase, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. To have the king's face to shine upon you was the, the, the bidding that it was safe to approach. You went before the king and you laid your head down and you bared your neck before the king and the guard who bore the sword would look to see if the face of, of the king was shining on you. And if it was, you could come near. And if not, it wasn't so good. To enter the presence and to know the intimacy and security that is found only in God, we have to pass through what we fear most, death. And because sin stands between you and me and God, he must slay us in order to save us. The holiness and justice of God leave us to wonder what can destroy sin while sparing sinners so God who is holy can finally dwell among his people. We are left to ask as David asked after Uzzah was killed trying to write the, the ark of the Lord. He said, how can the presence of the Lord come to me? And we're left with that same reality. How can we draw near to God? And the first thing we see in this text in, in Revelation chapter 7, really, John is invited, if you will, to look both ways before he crosses eternity. And he looks back and he looks forward. And I'm sorry if most commentators don't take it this way. I don't know what to do with that. But I've, I've, I, I really feel that it's true to the text. That... that what God shows John is, first of all, a, a group that is numbered and then a group that's innumerable. He shows the faithful who have entered into God's presence through um, out, of, out of the faithful of Israel. And then he shows John the faithful who have come through Christ. And commentators kind of rightly reckon that these two groups are the same, but then they say that the first isn't national Israel. And I think that that interpretation says more about us than it says about the Bible. I think part of our problem is this, that we see difference as a means of exclusion. We turn, when we do, we turn the church inside out. I hope you can follow me here. In doing this, we've asked what we've replaced rather than what we've become part of. You see, God created a people to call a people to himself. And God created a people into which to include a people. And God creates a people to be a welcome and a pattern for those who will come. And that is the testimony of our great heroes of the faith like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, whose righteousness at times exceeded that of God's people themselves. The faithful of Israel are shown first in this text because of their special role. Israel is God means of incorporating the tribes of the world into the family of God. Abram was, was, was promised to seed Jesus in whom the nations would be blessed. You, God is not afraid to both be particular and specific as well as to be inclusive at the same time. It doesn't trouble him like it troubles us. The promise that God made to Abram under a starry sky 4,000 years ago came to pass in you. 
You didn't simply get the promises given to Abraham. You are the promise given to Abraham sitting right here. You can trace your history back through the nations of the world. And at the same time, while that's particular, here's something wonderful. You can go anywhere in the world and you will find a community of people worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's inclusive. God's election is a means of his inclusion. God's blessing has a purpose. And when we untie this connection between election and mission and press forward this idea that election is God's means of exclusion, we miss the point. Israel was not called to the exclusion of others. Israel was called for the inclusion of others. You are not called to the exclusion of others. You were called for the inclusion of others. And so God creates a people to call a people. He also forms a people as a unified diversity. I I, I love this thought that, that everyone here is from somewhere else in this text. He sees this group from every tribe and nation of tongue, and this group is unified without losing its particularity. Both of them hold together in God. And because this multitude is global, we we basically push it and press it into the future. And I don't think we need to do that. I think when we do that, we're forgetting that the gospel was in the Himalayas and in Hyderabad before it was in Heidelberg. That the faith that came to America was forged in Africa. I love it when I when I talk with students as they discover that some of their early church fathers who they revere were African. We have flipped our history in a strange way that I think speaks something about us. But when we when we recapture this idea that that God is showing John something that is happening. The immediacy of this message comes to bear. It's not. God isn't saying to John, he's not communicating, someday things are going to be all right. Which is nice. I like that message. Here's what he's saying. I really believe this is what God is saying to John. Remember those faithful of Israel who died without seeing the promises? They're seeing them right now. And your brothers and sisters, while you're in exile, who are dying for the name of Jesus... They are dying in Christ now and just beyond this veil of tears, they are entering into my joy. And this vision gives us comfort while confronting our insecurities. Insecurities that drive us to defend our rights and get our share and keep our status. And when pushed, they show themselves in nationalism and isolationism and worse. And the chance at Charlottesville... And the murders at Mother Emanuel Church are at the far end of this line that God's choosing is all about excluding. And that to be insiders with God is to be insiders in the world. Because you open the veil of heaven and look into the kingdom and you see God's people in in diversity and unity with a slain lamb at their center. Not Not only is this people, everyone is from everywhere else, but everyone's wearing the same thing. This event is a cosmic faux pas. Uh, 
John sees this crowd different enough by complexion and features and sound to inform him that they're from every tribe and tongue, even though they're dressed the same way. They're dressed in white robes, maybe the, the simple robes of the priests who were at, when they were working and serving, or, or maybe the baptismal robes put on after baptism by the early church. Whatever they are, it's clearly a picture of unity and clearly a picture of purity. There is a a diversity and a sameness in Christ. We're called like him to to empty ourselves, to be of no reputation, to lay aside our privileges. Every Christian you have ever met has the same testimony. And I never tire of hearing it. I was a sinner and far from God and Jesus saved me. That's it. Every time you come to God, you come by the same way. You come by the blood of Jesus. It's by the same way that you first came. You continue to come. You don't get better at it. There is a way of cleansing that makes it possible. That's what we sang it earlier in Revelation 5.9. It gives the key to the possibility of this fellowship. When it says, worthy is the lamb to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And you've purchased by your blood persons from every tribe and nation and tongue. You know what kind of people Christians are? They're washed people. We're washed people. Not that, but everyone is doing the same thing. The crowd, the angels, the elders, they share in this united response to the presence of God. They worship. And worship is the response that we ought to have to the presence of God. They fall on their faces before the throne. I wonder, you know, it's odd that, that meeting God compels us to such wonder and awe. It seems very natural to me. It does make me wonder, though, that we meet people created in his image with such nonchalance. Every person you have ever met who is different from you is a preparation for you meeting God who is far more so. If we've not grasped the wonder of meeting persons, we're ill-prepared for heaven. I believe we need a return to awe. I believe we need a return to awe in our conversation. In the way that we talk person to person and in social media. In the way that we talk about all the kinds of things that we talk about. Every conversation you have is a contribution to what that other person will be like in eternity. What are we making of each other? In heaven, you're going to be surrounded. You're going to be falling on your face, surrounded by people very different from you. If you are a majority in the U.S., you're going to be a minority in heaven. If being a majority is important to you now, it's time to let it go. If your kind of people are some other kind than the Jesus kind, you won't find your click in heaven. But I hope instead that you will be greeted by those who brought you and those that you brought. 
You see, the point is God's presence. The purpose is to bring others with us. And love means that we bring people who are different from us with us. But I want us to see one more thing. That this gathering of God of a global people involves suffering. When we read that these bond servants of the Lord were healed before the judgment would come upon creation, we like to take that idea of sealing as being about protection. And by doing so, we misread Revelation. I think we do it because we are bothered by the idea that following Jesus will involve suffering. I know it's just half the verse, but as often as we cling to the promises of God, the one that we don't seem to cling to is in this world, you will have trouble. This isn't about protection as much as possession. Those who are marked by God are those who belong to him. Yes, I know in Ezekiel 9.4 that the sealed were the ones who were rescued out of the city. But Revelation throughout its entirety understands this idea that overcoming is precisely through death. In, in chapter 12, verse 11, we find out what it means to overcome when it says that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives even unto death. Overcoming in Revelation is following the pattern of the slain, slain Lamb. But the pattern we do see in Ezekiel is this. That those who are marked are those who mourn over the sins of the city. I think part of what we've lost is awe. I think part of what we've lost is mourning. I think that we have increased the amount of self-righteousness in our conversation. And decreased the amount of weeping. I believe God wants to raise up a generation of Jeremiah's who will weep over the sin in our own lives and in our culture and in our world and who will long that we and all others would come and return and fall on our faces before the King of glory. We find, oh, in Isaiah 66, that God says, this is the people who, to whom I will look. This is where I'm going to put my presence. To the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Oh Lord, make us that kind of people. And this in verse 14 is how they have come out of the great tribulation. They refuse to bow to the national gods. They have kept their confession that Jesus is Lord. And so they were so out of their heads for Jesus that they were willing to give their heads for Jesus. Overcoming means self-sacrificial love. Overcoming means that we, when we could have gone with the flow, instead we followed the Lamb. And these were the rejected of society. They were people who were out of step with their times in conflict with the world because of Jesus. They were makers of good trouble who showed love and kindness and the welcome of Christ in a world that can be selfish and hard and cruel. And they wouldn't give in to the world or play by its rules. The enemies of the, of, of the people of God in Revelation aren't relics of the past or perils from the future. They're, they're the dragon, the beasts, and the harlot. They're these constant calls towards pride, abuse of power, and self-gratification. Their acts entice and victimize everyone who hears their call. But the tension is, will they draw away the followers of the Lamb? The call of God 
is at odds with our sense of privilege and desire for comfort. Don't buy the lie that being an insider in the kingdom will make you an insider in the world. I used to have this book. I kept it on my shelf for years. It had a smiley face on the corner. And it said, How to Be a Christian, Happy and Successful. And I kept it there to remind me what I don't believe. Don't buy it. Celsus argued against Christianity saying, this is a religion for slaves and women and children and fools, and he's right. And I'm one of them. A fool who will not follow the world and its love of power, but will overcome with all my brothers and sisters by the power of love. Being in Christ involves and transcends loving the outcast. We must be the outcast because until we concede that we were alienated from God, there's no hope from us. And when at last we find our home in God alone, we realize that there's no longer any home for us here. We love those who are rejected of the world, not because of what we have to offer them, not because spending time with them makes us feel better about what we do have, but because we belong to them. And then we get to verse 15. For this reason. Why? What reason? Because they determined to follow the Lamb and that was more important to the world to these, in, than the world to these believers before the throne of God. Because they have followed the Lamb and it cost them everything. Verse 15 says, for this reason, they're forever before the throne. They serve God. And God shelters them. And in verse 16 and 17... They're relieved of hunger because they had gone without food. They're relieved of thirst because they've been denied water. They've relieved of beating sun because they've been subject to exposure and heat stroke. And the Lord will wipe away every tear. And when he does, they will wipe away. He will wipe away with his nail-starred hands, our tear-stained eyes. And we'll know that our tears have been acknowledged and important. And behind us. Do you long for this loving connection between the Lord and his people? To have him as our shepherd. To have him at the center of our gathering and our worship and our lives. I think we need to reorient our lives around the slain lamb. We need lamb-centered lives and lamb-centered communities because the closer we are to Jesus, this text shows us, the closer we are to each other. And one of the best ways to bring people closer to the lamb is to get closer yourself and make room for those coming up behind you to get closer to. Bring others with you. The whole of chapter 7 is like a movement from, from first fruits to the Feast of Tabernacles. We began with 144,000 who Revelation 14, 5 says were like first fruits unto the Lord. At that first harvest, Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God gathered a harvest of believers in Jerusalem. The Pentecost offering involved two loaves that were pre- that were placed before the Lord. And the rabbis teach these two loaves were Jews and Gentiles presented holy to God. At the Feast of Pentecost, the scroll of Ruth was opened and read in its entirety the story of a righteous Gentile brought under the wing of the God of Israel. 
It's a picture of being grafted in. But at the other end of the year is this Feast of Tabernacles. When all the goods of all the harvests throughout the seasons of Israel are presented to the Lord. And the 70 bulls that are offered at tabernacles are said to represent all the nations of the earth sanctified to the Lord. And God showed Zechariah that the Feast of Tabernacles is not just now, it's eschatological. He spoke of a day in Zechariah 13 when, when all the nations of the world would gather to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so now in this scene, we see them waving palm branches joyfully as at Tabernacles, awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Feast of Tabernacles ends with Simchat Torah, or the joy of the Lord. It's a celebration when the Torah scroll is taken and lifted up and danced through the congregation, the way that you hoist up a bridegroom and a bride at their wedding and dance them. And the idea is, Lord, the readings are starting over. May we commit ourselves fully to you and to your word. And of the tithes that are gathered and presented at that feast, provision was made at the feast. The poor and the orphan and the widow and the landless and the alien were invited to the table. The people on the margin became the honored guests. The portion of the tithes were distributed to those who were in need. And those who came only bringing hunger and hope found that they were laden with food. And those who brought food were left filled with joy and thankfulness. And this is the moment that the bride has been preparing herself for. And everything that the church does up until this moment ought to be a road sign of what's ahead. This is a moment when his presence would be with her and she would be with him and they would be together forever because God's presence has always been the point. And so in Revelation, we see th- this picture more intimate than the slain lamb as our shepherd. The lamb is our bridegroom. And we see this city descend from heaven. Not the shaky tabernacles that we built to live with God for a week. But an eternal city that God built to live with us forever. And as long, at long last, God will live among his people. And he's wiping our tears and drying our eyes. And we see the end of death and mourning and pain. I want to tell you today, if you're dealing with sin, come to the lamb. If you're suffering, come to the Lamb. If you're struggling with hurt and sorrow and despair, the slain Lamb has helped for you. If you've been slighted, misunderstood, rejected, falsely accused, devalued, disregarded, or perceived as a threat, if you thought nobody cared if you live or die, the Lamb has been there too. And He bore it for you so that you can find rest in Him. You're not defeated. You're on your way to His victory. Come to Him. That's the invitation that we have. Come and have your your robe washed white by the blood of the Lamb. You'll find in the heavenly city that there's a tree with leaves for the healing of the nations. You can come and be healed. And the city itself, we see, is the structure of a cube, the same shape of the Holy of Holies. The Lamb himself is the holiest place in the heavenly city. The place where only a certain person could enter at a certain time, a certain way, from a certain direction, is now open for all people at all time, from all directions. That's the end that we see. That's the goal that God has created. God's presence is finally with his people, and that's the point. It's the point, and we lose it so easily. It's the point every time we think 
that ministry has to do more with what we do in the pulpit than what we do with people. And any time we seek effectiveness over faithfulness, and every time we seek power and recognition over friendship, any time we think our calling is more about all that we do than who all we love, we lose it. We're really faced with a choice in Revelation. We can follow the dragon and the beasts and the woman of Babylon or follow the slain lamb. But to take up the cross and follow the lamb leads us to the hill where we and he must be slain. It's this total surrender of our lives to and for the love of God. I wonder how different we would look if we were as serious about God and his call as he is serious about us. I think it would raise the level to which our lives and ministries would be about other people rather than ourselves. I think it would raise the level in which we're interested in people who are different and other than us. I think it would raise the level in which we desire to turn away from every privilege and comfort to serve the one who is slain for us. And as you do these things, this is what's going to happen. People will begin to stream into the eternal city. By the blood of the Lamb, people who never imagined there was a place for them there. People will come to the marriage supper of the Lamb who never thought that there was a place setting or a place at the table for them. People who thought they were too weak or too small or unimportant or too broken, too dirty, too defiled will come and find what they barely dared to hope for the love and the security that can only be found in God through Jesus Christ. And there they and we will dwell with him forever because this is the point. The presence of God with his people, with us and with, with, with you. And if we listen even now, we can hear that very last call of the church and the bride. As they say together, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the ways that you're at work in our lives and ministries. I thank you so much for this incredible community. Father, there are so many here who are going to go and serve or are serving in places where it's discouraging. where they wonder if their efforts are breaking through. Help us to remember that your presence is the point. Father, help us to be willing to be less effective if it means being more faithful. Lord, help us to risk showing that love and friendship across boundaries that the world might have for us. Father, help us to live by the laws of heaven, even when it costs us everything. We're so in awe of the fact that you have loved us. I pray that you would be making us a people constantly awed by the great love you've shown us through your son and his cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
and make yourself present to those around us through us, through your body on earth, the, the church. Thank you, Rob. The James Earl Massey Student Preaching Award is given each semester to a Beeson Divinity School student who shows exceptional promise and proficiency and fruitfulness as a minister of the Word of God. We've already heard a little bit about Dr. Massey here this morning, widely known as a prince of preachers uh, in lots of different places around the world, but especially important to many people here at Beeson Divinity School uh, for his long-standing ministry of preaching and teaching and friendship. He went to be with the Lord in June of 2018, but uh, he left a really large legacy that many of us here continue to benefit from today and thank God for today. This semester's recipient of the Massey Preaching Award is our own dear brother, Rob Willis, who, of course, has just preached a wonderful sermon on Revelation 7, on the presence being the point. We thank the Lord that he has made himself present to us again this morning through Rob's preaching ministry and will make himself present to us all day long as we love one another uh, and act not just as hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Rob is no stranger to our community. He joined the Beeson team in 1996, 24 years ago, and currently serves as the media and technology manager. In fact, Rob's first class here at Beeson was taken in the same year that I first taught at my former seminary in Chicago, and that seems like a really long time ago to me. I served there for 22 years before coming here uh, to be with you last year and a half. So Rob has been a dear brother and an incredibly significant member of our staff and minister of the gospel here at Beeson and in town for a long time. And because he's been around for so long, we have a lot to say about him. So I hope you'll be patient with me. Uh, Leanne Little, my assistant, a couple of weeks ago when we were getting ready to, to honor Rob in chapel today, sent word out to people on the Beeson faculty and staff, letting them know that Rob is going to be the Massey Prize winner this semester and asking them for comments about Rob that I might share with you today. And I've got a bunch of them to share with you, but believe me, this is just a tiny fraction of the comments that came in. Rob is such a beloved member of our community that I'm really uh, exercising a lot of restraint here and giving you just a few of the things that were said about Rob. All right, Rob Willis, the person, has been described in this way by his Beeson colleagues. Rob Willis embodies a servant's heart rooted in his passion for Christ. He's directed the Media Center not only with technological expertise, but with a pastor's heart and a mind saturated with the Bible. He loves God's word, and it shows in every conversation and interaction. Rob is a unique blend of wisdom and humility. He's an exceptional colleague and a gifted preacher. Here's another quotation. I have known Rob Willis since he first came to Beeson, and I regard him as one of the school's most outstanding representatives. Rob consistently embodies what it means to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another, Rob is a true servant in the way he contributes to the good of Beeson Divinity School. 
For more than 20 years, I've observed Rob as a student, pastor, mentor, colleague, friend, husband, and father. And in each role, he carries himself with the same modicum of kindness, patience, sincerity, and helpfulness for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Over his many years of service here at Beeson, I've seen him live out the fruit of the Spirit day to day. He's a person marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Another quotation, Rob Willis shows the spirit of Christ by his quiet humility. I had to say, if there's one word that kept cropping up as I read through all the comments that were sent in about Rob, it was humility, Christ-like humility. And this can't be very good. This is a test of his humility. He's got to stand here and <laughs> listen to this. Uh, sacrificial service and genuine love towards others. He has a pastoral heart, a passion for Christ, and a stalwart faith. He's a gift from God to our school, students, faculty, and staff. Another, I've known and worked with Rob Willis since 1997. And during that time, I've observed that he goes about his work in the most humble and understated way that you could possibly imagine. Rob does everything with excellence while never seeking recognition for his extensive efforts and always pursuing the best for Beeson Divinity School. Rob Willis embodies a true disciple of Jesus Christ, setting an example for us all in speech and conduct, another person wrote. He's a gentle and humble colleague that makes working at Beeson an even greater joy. I'm thankful for his ministry and friendship at Beeson. One more uh, about Rob the person. To be around Rob is to inhale the very aroma of Christ. Rob Willis, the student, has been described in this way by Beeson Profs. I remember Rob as a diligent student in the best sense. He not only did everything required of him in the course he took from me, but he did it with the kind of zeal that arose from an understanding of why the course mattered. His commitment to the course emerged from his commitment to the critical importance of the Word of God to the life of the church. Another, Rob has honored the faculty by serving us tirelessly and with great patience. And beyond that, he's been in our classes studying with us. All right, finally, a few quotations on Rob Willis, the preacher. Again, this is just a tiny fraction of what came in. Rob has keen insights into Christian discipleship and the spiritual life. He preaches God's word from the overflow of his time with the Lord. Rob is consistently faithful to his calling as a minister of Jesus Christ, whom he fearlessly proclaims as the way, the truth, and the life. He preaches from the heart with great conviction and those who hear him recognize the Spirit of God at work in his words. Another professor said Rob's primary gift is as a pastor and disciple-maker. Another said Rob always seeks to honor the Lord and glorify Christ with his gifts of preaching, teaching, music, and then in parentheses, and technical expertise. The way he lives his life as a believer and servant leader is an outstanding example of Colossians 1.10 as he walks in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Last quotation. In the preaching of Rob Willis, the forth-telling voice of the prophet is heard. 
Rob's message is thought-provoking and continues to linger in the minds of the hearers long after the benediction, as I'm sure it will today. His proclamation is undergirded by the twin pillars of the cross and the kingdom of God. And now in just a few short weeks, Rob is going to graduate with his Master of Divinity degree from Beeson Divinity School. The good news is he's promised to stick around and be a minister of the gospel among us uh, for a lot longer. Uh, But we're about to welcome him into the community of uh, beloved Beeson alumni. And with that in mind, we present to him uh, the Massey Prize. Let me read to you what this certificate says. James Earl Massey Student Preacher Award for Excellence in Faithful Proclamation of Holy Scripture, the faculty of Beeson Divinity School recognizes and commends Robert Willis, class of 2020 and 21. Would you join me in congratulating our dear brother Rob? wonderful thing about all those things that were said about me is they could be said about all of you. Well, maybe not so much the technical expertise, but everything else. Um, you know, I've, I think I said earlier, I'll have to look back and see what it is I said, but I think I said earlier that I felt like I've cheated a little bit in getting this because of um, how much has been poured into me. But I've been in a a, a small and wonderful preaching class this semester and have been among preachers who uh, are, would be wonderful candidates for this award. And I've learned um, from all of you, and I'm grateful for, uh, for your contributions to my life. And I don't think of that in any small way at all, but in a great way. So thank you for your faithfulness, for your service, for the ways that you serve God, not only in your schoolwork, but in the ministries that you're involved in, in the ways that you balance that with your work and your families. There's a lot to be said for our Beeson students. And um, the thing that I love more than anything else in this community is seeing what God does in his interaction between our faculty and the students and also the students as you go through your lives together and the way he shapes and forms you. And I think that's why I feel like I get to do this and I get up and do it each day. So thank you.